Hello, my name is Deb Grant. And my name is still Eamon Murtagh. And this week, Eamon Murtagh is given the very best birthday present ever. I really am. And our Deb delivers a fantastic rendition of some of the great songs of her childhood. It's rather traumatic for me, but hopefully you'll be entertained. (laughs) This week's episode is, very excitingly, a jazz special. We're going to be investigating... The unexpected ride, that's gospel, Eamon, of the UK jazz scene <laughs> with uh, music writer and academic, the brilliant Casper Melville. Yeah, if you're even a tiny bit of a jazz fan or maybe just jazz curious, it's a must. I think it's going to be a really good interview. So, shall we pod? Let's pod. Eamon Murray, here comes the big question. What goes around? Well, one of the nicest. I've spoken a lot to you about things that have troubled and and perturbed me recently, but something really, really nice is about to happen to me. Could be the best thing. Do you know what it is yet, or do you just have a feeling? I do know what it is. I was just giving you a little space to guess. It's your birthday. You're getting a big birthday present. I'm getting a very big birthday present. Oh, I know what this is. Yes, you see. You're getting a windfall. Tell me about your windfall. I'm getting. I'm getting a. A vinyl windfall. So uh, when I was growing up and learning to mix, um, I was surrounded by cross-armed boys who were um, very competitive and uh, I didn't have the kind of battling ego that is required to learn to mix. Because a lot of mixing is kind of about confidence and feeling like you know what you're doing. So I didn't really have that confidence and I was, basically I was a terrible DJ for quite a long time. And I thought maybe it's just because I have no rhythm and I can't, I can't DJ. But my friend took me to one side and he, we rented out a room uh, so we could make as much noise as we possibly wanted to and we got the decks out and we just played and played and played and through his kind tuition I learned to mix and that has basically changed my life and set me up for what I do. So many many years have passed and same said DJ I bump into him so uh, another friend of mine was uh, he was selling a few records so I went and bought a load of records off him and then I met this other guy in the pub and we started chatting about it. I was telling him, you know, I'm playing a lot now. So I just bought these off Ben. It's really good. And he was like, blah, blah. And then he said, Eamon, do you want my records? What? And I was like, what? He said, do you want my records? I said, but, 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 but. And he said, well, look, you know, I went digital a few years ago. They've all been up in the loft. You're playing them. I don't really want to sell them. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to just get some money for them or whatever it's been lovely to think sell them is he a millionaire well because well i mean he's doing all right for himself but i think the point is he feels an emotional attachment to those records and he wants them to be used and enjoyed and loved and he doesn't need the money particularly so he just said do you want them and of course i uh, well first of all i said are you mental (laughs) and we had that conversation and he said yeah yeah no definitely so then it was like i went home that night i said at least this i can i I can get all these records And, and this guy's got amazing taste. It's a big collection. Um, we kind of grew up at the same time. I used to work in the record shop and used to sell him quite a lot of records. So I know what he's bought yeah. and um, and I want it. <laughs> Let me tell you, I want it. So anyway, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come and get the records. And then COVID happened. And so that was like basically two and a half years ago. And for one reason or another, it just hasn't come together. And on my, on my birthday before last, you know, online, again, he said you know happy birthday if you want these records they're they're there for you and another year then passed because we still hadn't got out of the melange of of uh, mask wearing upset so now we're finally supposedly out of the big danger 
I can go up and get them and it's my birthday on Wednesday and on Saturday we're going to collect the haul. How many are there? We're talking about 18 boxes of records. Fuck off. And what's the, yeah. what primarily, what's the vibe? So, uh, he, were, we came up through the rave thing, but he was into hip hop before rave. Mm. And um, he always bought the more thoughtful, perhaps more ambient sounding records. So so if I was playing things that Easy Groove might play, Bashing Out Techno, he would be playing things that Sasha might play that are a bit more housey and a bit more woo-woo. And lots of ambient things that I would never have bought because I just couldn't afford the indulgence of it. And just really nice, to, you know, he's got, he's got incredible taste. And um, he also has the records he grew up with. So it's quite a varied haul. The bulk of it is going to be mixable, danceable, 12 inches from the 90s, which I'm so up for. Yeah. <laughs> so we've hired a van and we're going we're gonna to go and get them. But this, it's such a big thing. The more I think about it, the more my little heart bursts because, you know, you know he, he sent me a message the other day that he'd been, he spent the day packing them all up and, you know, he's, it's been really emotional because it is emotional, your yeah, records. You know, you look at your records and you think about the times, the whole phonographic memory thing, you know, the times you've had that record the people who were around at the time, the parties you played, how that record made you feel. These things are really important and they don't leave you. You can put them in the attic for 10 years mm. and when you pick them out and look at those records again, you get those feels again. I, I would understand, because obviously, you know, Bill Brewster got rid of all his records mm. as we discussed with him on the podcast. But like that was because he was moving into a new house and he had gone mm. digital too, but there was also a, you know, he was being pragmatic. It was like a question of space. Like if this guy has room in his house. Yeah, they were in the attic though. They weren't yeah. being used. I think that's, that's his thing. He's like, you know, you have these things and in a way he feels like I do, which is like your records need to be there on standby at all time. You, you could play anyone at any moment. And um, and when you want that record, that's the one you want. And, and they need to live. They need to breathe. They need to they need to be heard by people. That's the main thing. You, you know, he doesn't want them to sit in the dark and slowly warp. But it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, so, so generous and it, not just financially generous, but emotionally generous. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I feel like, yeah. I feel like I'm being entrusted. It's like someone saying, Here's the, here are the keys to the British Museum. You're in charge now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to record going up and getting them for the pods and Aww. we'll have a, have a little feature about it. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to want to appear personally, but um, we'll talk about what it's like to go and get this because I don't think I've ever had a present as big as this. Do you yeah. know, it's a massive thing. And I certainly haven't had anything that carries so much emotional weight from the person giving, you know, because, I mean, I would... I would I would die if my if my records were taken away from yeah, me. I would I yeah. wouldn't know what to do. But I think the interesting thing thinking about it is, while I couldn't have them taken away, maybe you can give them away. Mm, yeah. you know, maybe if you feel like you're in charge of it, then you can do that. I don't. It's a hell of a thing to do, and yeah. I'm just really grateful and a bit choked up that he's chosen to do it to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, you better not go digital now. Do you know it's funny? Um, <laughs> Bill sold his uh, sold his records to um, to Nick the Record. And uh, who I bumped into uh, at Jazz Cafe last Saturday night, he was playing. And uh, I had never met him before. And I was like, oh, Nick the Record. And we were chatting about uh, Bill and how, you know, um, uh, mm -hmm. he'd acquired Bill's record collection. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm Nick the Stick now. <laughs> Didn't even have any records with him. <laughs> wow. Why not? Um, he's, uh, he's got loads of them. <laughs> I guess he's gone digital now as well. I think he mainly, 
I think he might have sold Bill's records for him. Really? Uh, but it was just funny. And Nick the Stick is a lot catchier, to be fair. I suppose it is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always thought Nick the Record made me, sound, made me feel nervous. Do you yeah, know? yeah. I think that was <laughs> he wouldn't want to be playing on the same bill as Nick the Record. Yeah, like, you'd be watching your bags like a hawk. The thing about digital stuff is, like, I, mean, I totally see how... I mean, having lugged my records to London and back this weekend, I absolutely understand how much easier and how much more sense it makes to put things on a, on a stick. But I just don't enjoy the sensation of scrolling through things to, to play. And also, I don't know, when you do your digital gigs, I mean, don't you ever find, I don't think, I can't find the inspiration. Like, So when I'm playing something, I will, I will hear the music and I'll think of the next thing I want to play. But I will often just, it'll be like, I'll see the label in my head or I'll see a corner of, of the record and that will be the thing that enables me to search for it and find it and pull it out. When it comes to being inspired and playing digitally, I'll hear the sound, I'll think about the, the sound I want to make sit with that sound, but I won't be able to visualise it mm because it's a list of names and my brain doesn't work that way. I need the picture. I'm the exact same. It's completely like, it's just not, it's not, it doesn't, it just isn't as engaging. In fact, I don't play mm. digital gigs anymore. I mean, I, I don't play that many gigs, but if I do, it has to be a place with vinyl decks. Cause yeah, that's the pleasure is like flipping through. Mm. And it also like, I don't know, it, it kind of, maybe some DJs find it find this a hindrance but like it narrows down the possibilities but that's good because it's like oh there yeah. are one or two directions I could go here let me see which one would work yeah and I really feel that limitation thing because I think um, it's like when occasionally there have been people around the house and we're having a mix or whatever sometimes I just kind of get rabbit in the headlights about what I'm going to play next because mm. it's all there do you know what I mean it's like I played a street party at the end of my road the other day and that was fab fun, um, but one of the DJs didn't show up, so then suddenly I had like an extra two hours to fill. And normally I'd have a mini breakdown at that stage. Yeah. But then I realised my house was 15 steps away. Wow. So I just went into my house, grabbed a load of stuff and brought them over. But the great thing about having this, you know, finite number of things is that that's the game. Mm -hmm. That's exactly. the, the confines are what makes... DJing fun in a way because yeah. you you have to work your you work out what you've got and how you can put it together and if you've got I don't know ten thousand records on a on a on a stick then I don't think I think you'll end up just being a bit too random yeah do you know yeah. you'd be scrolling along you go oh fucking that one I'll do I'll yeah, do that do absolutely. you know what I mean yeah 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 it's like whereas with records it's like doing a Rubik's cube. You're like, you know, it, it takes all of your focus and you're like, I have to put hmm. this together in a coherent way in order to solve the puzzle. Where it's like, yeah, fucking mistakes is just like shooting fish in a barrel. I, I wonder if people who, who grow up with, uh, you know, just doing digital things, I mean, I guess they just never feel this yeah. and don't miss it and it doesn't I make any sense to them. I would find it terrifying to DJ with records because of that extra pressure because if yeah. you're not used to it. Like, oh, imagine if you say, like, here's your, here's your, here's your memory stick, yeah, DJ, yeah, big yeah. DJ. By the way, there's only 60 songs on it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got two hours, you better put them in the great order, yeah. you're screwed, mate. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, if the next DJ doesn't show up, you're on B-sides. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that challenge and I like I like the you know I guess going back to getting these these records as a present is like there's something about the physicality of it that it brings an emotional response within me that makes me care a lot more mm. and I, I and, the, and the physical feel of them makes me feel like I'm 
actually building something like I'm you know I'm actually like I'm building a wall or I'm building a structure of some kind in sound you know what I mean whereas when it's all there and there's loads of stuff and I, and I can't feel attached to those things because you know I haven't looked at that cover for 10 years it's just a so-and-so by so-and-so on a tiny little scroll wheel I just it's it's almost like I can't hear the music in my head when I see the name yeah it's really strange yeah, but yeah. I'm gonna love having this collection and uh, I'm also going to break my back and um, probably cause my house to sink into a, a sinkhole. Um, worth it, I'm sure worth it is. Worth it. Worth <laughs> 100%. <laughs> the marvellous DJ Deb Grant, please tell us what is going around in your showbiz circle. Uh, I don't know about show. I don't really have a showbiz. You're my showbiz circle. <laughs> to be it's more a showbiz line, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's yeah like exactly. a queue, perhaps. Showbiz. I wanted to talk to you. But I saw a very funny tweet which reminded me of my own childhood recently, uh, mm. which is some woman was saying that she went right to see her friend and her friend's like two and a half year old kid recently. And uh, the kid was like, oh, sometimes we sing songs at bedtime. And the woman was like, oh, what songs do you sing? And the kid said, drink the water or I'm taking it away. (laughs) 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 And it reminded me, it reminded me of the little songs that my parents used to sing to me and my sister. The main one. The mind boggles. (laughs) (laughs) The main one was uh, a little ditty that went... Shut up, shut up, shut up, you irritating child. Me and my sister still sing to each other. Most of the songs involved uh, us like either shutting up or going away or like stopping all the time. I would say what a what a glorious, harmonious household uh, it must isn't have been. It? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean obviously it had an impact on me because, you know, the one thing I haven't done as I've grown up is shut up um, that's so, true so yeah um, but yeah I guess I'm, I'm wondering about uh, are there any sim because you grew up in an Irish household did you have uh, I did I did um, oh god we, we used to shout all sorts of things at each other um, I, I think most of our like little songs that we sang revolved around pets okay. all our pets had little songs yeah Uh, And I still have songs that I sing to my cat and things like that. Um, We've got one particularly brilliant one because um, our cat's called Garibaldi. Shall I do it? Shall I do it? Okay. We go to the to the 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 Hallelujah chorus. Garibaldi, 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 my favourite little cat. Glory to Gaz on high, the king of kittens. Garibaldi, Garibaldi, Garibaldi. You see, now that has brought me literally years of fun. I sing that every day. What about Frida? Have you got any songs for Frida about how she needs to shut up and go to bed? So when she was very small, um, I decided to brainwash her uh, <laughs> because that seemed like a wise thing to do. Now, because kids getting them to sleep is very difficult. So you, you have to do a routine. And so uh, the routine we had involved picking a song to get her to go to sleep. And we chose Goodnight by the Beatles, which is lovely. So we used to sing, now it's time to say goodnight. And, you know, for a little while, for about a year, that was basically like uh, an elephant stun gun. You'd sing that and she'd be asleep within two seconds. And then it started to sort of slowly drift away. And as she's got older, she starts adding in her own <laughs> lyrics like, No, I won't. Please go away. <laughs> <laughs> little genius. 
Yeah, and just generally like rebelling in her own little ways. But I've always been the type of person, I make up a song about almost anything, you know. I'm doing the washing up, I'm doing the washing up, here we go round, picking up toes, la 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 la, or, you know, anything, anything at all, I will sing a song about it. I used to make uh, up a lot of songs about Tim, I would sing songs to Tim about anything he was doing, I'd make up, in fact... It's kind of no wonder we broke up. <laughs> I don't remember him ever enjoying it. The divorce papers are unreasonable behaviour. Yeah, she sang yeah. at me every day. And, subs, and then he'd complain and I'd be like, you used to love my singing. Doomed from that moment forward. It's like the glorious Swanson in you couldn't handle that rejection. <laughs> I understand. Listen, uh, just I think we should all keep on singing. You know, old songs, new songs. Keep on singing as family once said. Shut up, shut up, shut up, you irritated. <laughs> it's time to go away. Shut up, shut up, shut up. We've ended this section of the pod. I worked in a record shop in the mid-80s all the way through to the end of the 90s. And during that time, I saw all manner of new music come to fruition. Much of it was inspired by the ideals of punk, if not the sound of punk, because it was a DIY attitude that brought the new music to the fore. Whether that was lo-fi production sounds of grunge and indie music, or the musical revolution spurred on by technology finally becoming cheap enough for composers to make their own mark away from big record companies and expensive recording studios. Finally, the artists could write and record new sounds without having to jump through any of the hoops of traditional music making. No education, no formal training, no rule books. Just make a racket and get it out there. And at that point, at the end of the 90s when rave was at its peak and jungle and speed garage and all these other things were just beginning to bubble up the very last thing i ever expected to see make a resurgence was jazz and yet here we are 20 years later and uk jazz is back and leading the world at the moment with some amazing artists from shabaka hutchings to coco roco to nubi garcia emma jean thackeray and so many more it is a vibrant and exciting scene but the thing about jazz is you can't just pick it up like you pick up a laptop and start pressing some buttons and get the noises you want. Jazz takes training, it takes time, and it takes a lot of effort, a lot of discipline, and all the things that, frankly, we were fighting to get rid of during the 90s in music. So I'm really excited and interesting to talk to Casper Melville about how jazz has come back to the fore of British music and where it might be going next, because... I think it's one of the most unexpected and exciting comebacks that music's had in a long time. Please welcome to the show, Casper Melvin. Hiya. Hello, how are you, Casper? I'm very well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. No problems. Well, listen, you wrote into the, the show, uh, basically being very nice about it, which is very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, but you talked a little bit to me on your email about how UK jazz has really been incredibly successful at a time when no one expected it to to launch itself again. And I was really interested in some of the work that you're doing, looking at how this sort of rebirth of jazz, I think that's, this must be the third or fourth rebirth of jazz we've had so far, but how that actually happened in terms of, you know, where did that all that training come from? Where did those scenes who kept the flame alive during those barren times when, you know, essentially dance music especially and, um, you know, sort of indie music 
ruled the roost and there really wasn't any future for for jazz how did how did all this come about because it's such a hard thing to break into jazz oh well it, indeed it is Eamon and um I mean I, I suppose I should give a bit of context for you know why I'm got interested in this really mm. I mean I was a bit of a latecomer uh in some sense I mean you know i I was a music journalist I'm now an academic and I write about popular music and uh black music afro-diasporic music um and you know, I've been particularly interested in the emergence of club culture and warehouse parties and the relationship between particularly music and race, which is kind of embedded in black music. You know, it mm. kind of carries with it the echoes and uh, the sort of history of what used to be called in the 70s race relations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, having kind of, you know, I'm a child of the 1980s and rare groove and warehouse parties and that kind of stuff. And I went and lived in America in the 1990s. And actually, I had a bit of a kind of jazz moment in america because it was a kind of as 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 acid jazz was kind of slightly fading in in the uk you know having been quite a kind of hip thing uh at the end of the 1980s with uh you know giles peterson and patrick forge and that scene that they had around dingwalls mm-hmm. um and when i went to america um i kind of hooked up with some other english people and we kind of staged a little bit of an acid jazz scene in san francisco where we were in the 90s uh we set up a jazz magazine uh, there were some great local bands around and we brought some other people in we brought omar and ufo and some of these kind of characters to to san francisco uh cruder and dorfmeister um but my interest in jazz was always uh, an artifact of record collecting and what i learned from rare groove you know so i was you know i learned it all from records i learned you know it was herbie hancock and donald bird and roy Ayers, that kind of stuff so the american musicians were in the forefront there mm-hmm. and while there were you know british jazz bands um you know some of whom were great uh, there was always this sense that the americans kind of outshone them they had better technique you know and when you research that there are some good strong reasons why i mean in you know looking at a career of someone like maceo parker for example i mean he's not a straight ahead jazz musician but he is a jazz player alongside being a funk musician you realize that in his career i just did a bit of um a bit of a calculation when there was an interview and he talked about how often he would played and he played something like 300 shows a year Mm. for you know 40 years so we're talking about someone who's been on stage working at his craft you know, for you know, tens, 20,000 shows. Mm. And, and the British jazz scene never had the benefit of that. It never had the chitlin circuit. It never had the opportunity to really kind of craft, you know, work on your craft. So they were always, you know, running behind what was happening in America. And British jazz, therefore, didn't feel... I mean, the kind of jazz I knew about, which was kind of street jazz, club jazz, not the formal jazz world of Ronnie Scott's and the big jazz fest, uh, sort of festivals uh, like Cheltenham, which felt very much out of reach, not particularly welcoming to a younger crowd, a little bit dusty. I mean, if you go to Ronnie Scott's, I mean, Ronnie Scott's is a wonderful institution, but there's an element where you feel a little bit like you're on a jazz cruise. You feel a little bit uh, penned in. It feels a little bit formalised uh, while, while you get fantastic musicians there. So... Fast forward to 2018, like I said, I was a bit of a latecomer here. In 2018, I went to a show at the Church of Sound, which is a church in Clapton, which is given over to music on the weekends or at different times. And the guys who used to program the music at the Total Refreshment Centre in Hackney, uh, Lex and his crew, kind of took it over as a venue. Mm -hmm. And I found myself there in 2018, um, and I went to see a show which was Ezra Collective and Kokoroko together playing the Felicuti Songbook. I mean, it was as good as you can imagine. But the thing, it was, it was off the hook. But the things that really struck me, and this is after, you know, you know, I'm in my 50s now, you know, so I'm not much of a clubber these days, but I have 
a sense that uh, clubbing had changed a lot from the days when I used to do it and it had become a little bit more commercialized and more formalized. Um, so going into this venue, I mean, it's a church, it's a really lovely church and they played in the round. So you've got all the musicians around and you've got all the pews packed out with people and you've got loads of people standing and dancing. And the things that really struck me were the skill of the musicians, you know, these were confident young musicians, many of them in their 20s, who really felt like they knew their way around their instrument in a way that in the past didn't, you know, they weren't just playing licks, they weren't just playing grooves, they were, you know, they were combining it, you know, in this Afrobeat kind of environment. That was the first thing. The second thing was, there were young black women at the forefront, you know, the thing that really struck me was Sheila Morris Gray, who plays the trumpet, standing next to Cassie Kenoshi, Cassie Kenoshi who's not a, a, a very large person, playing a massive baritone saxophone <laughs> and really digging it, right? Really getting into it. They weren't just playing, uh, they were dancing. The crowd were really involved. And this was the third part of it. Young people who were dancing to the jazz, right? They were raving. Yeah. And I got very strong kind of uh, flashbacks to, you know, soul to soul at the africa center you know which for me was kind of the pinnacle of you know late 80s clubbing in london multicultural diy and punky in some respects but um really participative and that was what was what i saw in front of me and i was like what the hell is this how has this happened and it took me a little while to realize that actually things have been going on for a lot longer you know there had been a whole long road to get to this. Mm. 2018 was kind of the moment when UK jazz sort of hit the big time in a certain way. You know, the New York Times did an article about it. Well, Kate Hutchinson wrote it, who's a British journalist, but she, she found that she could get it published in the New York Times. There were lots of articles that year about the Renaissance, the rebirth, you know, people like Shabaka Hutchins, Nabar Garcia, putting out albums, coming to the fore and being recognised as really significant musicians not just people who you know could do a good job and you know wouldn't be ashamed to share a stage with the americans but actually people that it seemed like you know the american label you know international anthem in chicago mm. uh Mackay mccraven and uh, angel bat dawid and this uh, um, damon locks and these kind of guys were wanting it seemed to collaborate with these british musicians were giving them props were thinking that they had something new to say <laughs> The idea of having something new to say in the jazz world 
And a jazz world which is often a little bit reverential about its own past and can often feel like its best is behind it because we know so much about Miles Davis and, um, you know, Herbie Hancock and the great musicians of the past. Um, that can be a bit of a burden, I often felt, to new younger musicians. But what these musicians were doing was bringing new flavors into the mix. Obviously, the Afrobeat flavor, right? So Fela Kuti is like one of the big heroes of this new British jazz scene, along with Alice Coltrane um, and that kind of, and, and Ferris Sanders, obviously. But also making reference to and feeling comfortable with, you know, the history of British club music. Mm -hmm. So funk and soul, but also grime and drill and trap and this other interesting bit, not just Afrobeat, but high life and other West African flavours, which reflects the changing demographics of kind of black Britain. Because now, you know, when I was growing up in the UK, most, most black British people would trace their roots to the Caribbean. Mm. Um, and Jamaican, you know, the Jamaican music and identity was the strongest sort of, you know, part of that throughout the 70s and 80s with the rise of Rasta and uh, sound systems. But uh, that's shifted, and now um, Black Britain is, you know, just slightly majority West Africa, and you know, Ghana and and, um, and Nigeria, and we can hear that in the music, and we can hear that in the new jazz, mm. and what you can also hear is the return of some sounds and flavours which had been somewhat lacking in the kind of uh, post blue note jazz world, if you want to put it like that, which is, you know, carnival music, going back to New Orleans kind of music. When you listen to Shabaka playing, you know, he, he, he pulls together that connection to Trinidad Carnival because he's Trinidadian, but also you can hear that sort of rawness of original New Orleans jazz, which was a kind of punky, do-it-yourself, uh, raucous, um, but very, invol very involving, what they call, you know, antiphonal, you know, or, or antiphonal. I'm never quite sure how to um, describe it. But, you know, this, this elemental character of African and African-derived music, which is, the, it is a combination of the people up on the stage playing and the people in the audience. And that, that is a sort of sacred relationship, which is, is what actually produces the thing itself. It's not just you going reverentially to sit you know, yeah. and watch someone do something. You are, the crowd are part of it. And that was a very strong feeling that I got from that show. And it, it set me on a path. You know, I just was just finishing up a book which I had written called It's a London Thing, which was a kind of social history of the emergence of bl black music dance cultures from sort of reggae going through to rare groove, acid house and jungle. And I'd sort of finished at the end of the 90s. So in a way, I was ready for a new project. But then I was thinking, you know, this... What, what has happened here? I really didn't know. During lockdown, I held a couple of online events with, um, I collaborated with Tomorrow's Warriors, who are the most important sort of institution, although they're not, you know, they're a kind of uh, charity um, in, this, in this space. And also with Jazz Refreshed, who are coming from more from the club's side, but they had some, a really influential uh, night at the Mau Mau Bar in Portobello Road, sadly now been sold and will turn into sort of depressing flats or something yes, they, that's the way of all good you know how that goes yeah. you know how that goes so um so really i'm you know while while i know something about this thing i'm i'm on a journey still because mm. i'm still determined to try and figure out how did this come about what through what processes and unlike all of the uh, musical scenes that i studied in my book you know going back to sound systems and then rare groove and warehouse parties and acid house none of that got any public funding none of that required the level of training and practice that you just described uh, that, that jazz does require you know you really need to know your way around an instrument you need to put in the hard hours you know ten thousand hours possibly according to some sociologists yes. is what you need um so 
some of it, this is going backwards a little bit to go and try and find out how it happened. And really, even though tomorrow's warriors have um, they've, they've had their props, you know, to a certain degree, both um, uh, Gary Crosby and Janine Irons, who who run it, um, have been recognised. You know, I think Gary's got an OBE and uh, Janine's got an MBE, and you know, people have heard of them. Um, actually, when you dig back into it, it's quite astonishing the influence that Tomorrow's Warriors have had on this scene. You know, in, in 1991, I think, when they set up Tomorrow's Warriors, they had a very explicit agenda. Gary had come out of the Tomorrow's, uh, the Jazz Warriors, you know, with played with Courtney Pine, Dennis mm-hmm. Baptiste, you know, that generation, Orphie Robinson, a really significant black British jazz band, one of the only black British jazz bands that reached that level of prominence. And I remember seeing them back at the WAG Club. And it was really cool, but it, it wasn't hip, in a certain way it was like you could still feel that they you know they were still wearing suits and you could still feel that they were they were playing a kind of music and they'd been trained to play a kind of music which was more appropriate or the kind of music that they taught in the music conservatoires and that they would put in the more formal jazz kind of institutional settings but apparently and i'm sure you know gary who's quite a radical you know he's got a, uh, he's got a kind of black nationalist perspective on these things which i think is is perfectly justified about the way that black music has been mistreated and commodified and black people have not been given access to these institutions Mm. so one of the big things he had noticed was that for a lot of young black jazz musicians aspirant jazz musicians if they were able to acquire the skill on their instrument which would allow them to apply to music school right you know Guildhall or laban or whatever they would go there and they would find themselves considerably behind the white middle-class students who were the majority there because they hadn't had access to private tuition or they hadn't been to the kind of schools where they got that kind of rigorous training. And so they felt, Janine and and Gary felt, they wanted to intervene in this and they wanted to sort of pick up these younger people, a much younger age, you know, maybe 12, and train them in such a way that they would then be ready to go to music school uh, on top of their game and not feel that they were somehow secondary, you know, second-class citizens. And again, one of the other issues, of course, is there are very few black teachers in um, in music schools, just like you know the university sector which, in general. Which doesn't. is actually quite mind-blowing when you consider a subject like jazz, which is you know an authentic American black art form. But, and so, how does you, how does you even, you're end up right. at that situation? Well, you know, I mean, you know, how long have you got? But you yeah. know, you say it in very simple terms that, you know, we have lived in a situation of white supremacy and, you know, of racism, in, which has infiltrated every aspect of our of our world mm. and needs to be unlearnt and needs to be addressed across all of the institutions. So what Gary and um, and uh, Janine did was very much focus on that issue. And in particular, they wanted to get more young black women involved. Um, and so they went out of their way to do that. And it's really very simple idea. How do you ensure that you can diversify the jazz world? Free lessons, yeah. right? Simple as that. The lessons are free. Anyone can come, okay? Anyone can come, fine. But then you need to have quite a rigorous sense that not everyone's going to make it because it requires really, really hard work and dedication. So they had an open door policy. You know, they, in 2009, they started off kind of very small in their own homes and in little jam sessions. Gary used to run the house band at the Jazz Cafe and he used that as a place to start training younger musicians and also at the Spice of Life, which has a very long history of being involved in uh, a place for like the learning and training of black music all the way back to the 1940s, actually. I think it was called the Bag of Nails before that. Anyway, then, then they managed to get access to the South Bank. 
uh, I, I imagine they got some reduction or perhaps even free um, facilities. So they could offer free lessons every weekend to whoever wanted to come, um, but you had to commit. And through that process, it turns out over the 30 years that they've been doing this, 10,000 students have passed through their hands. And if you look at the list, if you just kind of compile a list off the top of your head, like you did at the beginning of this, uh, of of the the most prominent players, you know, Moses Boyd, Shabaka Hutchins, Binka uh, Golding, uh, Nabai Garcia, uh, and the bands, Ezra Collective, Coco Roco, they all came out of Tomorrow's Warriors. It's kind of you can kind of describe it quite simply, you know, like so there were some musicians, some music people, and they decided to try and, you know, spread the word and train up uh younger, especially female players in a certain way, blah blah blah. And you can kind of say, Well that's that's good and that's laudable. But as you point out, the success rate is phenomenal. Mm. And the way it has changed the whole perception of jazz in this country is unbel- I mean, just this week, I mean on Thursday I'll be going to We Out Here, which is um, oh, lucky a, you. I'm a jealous. big old festival, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, which is primarily a jazz festival. And mm. there won't be primarily old men in red trousers wandering around guffawing at, at um, <laughs> is it hard bop or is it not? You know, it, it has changed fundamentally. So I was wandering around We Out Here and uh, what should I find but a stall with Nikki O'Donnell on and uh, she's collecting money and spreading the word for Tomorrow's Warriors. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, Nikki. Um, Well, I'm a trustee on the board, actually, because Tomorrow's Warriors is a charity. So we're here trying to fundraise and support the musicians and also lots of the staff are here because we've got a big lineup of the young musicians coming through the Tomorrow's Warriors programmes on the stages at um, We Out Here. So we're in the merch tent, pushing our wares and shouting out about the wonderful work that Tomorrow's Warriors has been doing for the last 30 years. Yeah, I mean, it's so phenomenally successful. You mentioned some of the people who are playing here at this very festival. Yeah, so um, this morning we've already had Menelik Claffey Ensemble with um, Zoe Pascal on drums, which was fantastic. Uh, Cassius Cobson's playing. Then we've got a big Tomorrow's Warriors jam in the um, big top. Emily Janes Roberts, Romana Campbell, then the big Gish band and Maddie Coombs, the Jotty Quintet. Donovan Hafner, Kianja, Isabella, Burnham, and lots more. Uh, All of the the small group, the big group, are all in the uh, big top tent throughout the weekend. And then, of course, on the main stages, you've got Comet is Coming, Camilla George, and many more alumni of Tomorrow's Warriors. So Shabaka Hutchins is here, and I'm sure I'm going to miss out loads of names. But basically, the London and British jazz scene is being fed these wonderful musicians that go on from Tomorrow's Warriors on a Saturday, they end up in music school or on the stages. Or like um, Ben, who's an alumni, he writes music for the National Theatre now. Uh, Cherise is singing with Gregory Porter on Disney stuff. I mean, it's just really feeding into the wider music community, not just jazz, you know, that smallish world, although it's getting bigger. And also the important thing is it's not just for the musicians. There are kids that go through the programme as young people and they come out and they might go off and be a lawyer or they'll go off and work with kids. Or, But they've built up a specific confidence that comes from performing and sharing music and, you know, all of the stuff that 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 goes around learning music in a group 
great camaraderie and their confidence as young people is just phenomenal. And that's because of the work that Janine and Gary have been doing for 30 years and all the supportive staff they've got around them. But we can't do it without charitable giving from the public. So if anyone's out there, get online and, and, and give, 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 because you know there's not enough money out there and all those kids come for free yeah which is also really important because we attract a more diverse group of kids that can't necessarily afford music lessons and there's a lot more women in jazz warriors and tomorrow's warriors uh bands than you'll see in many i mean that that for me is one of the most striking things is actually like i would say 20 years ago yeah i could have counted on one hand the amount of prominent jazz musicians that were female that I knew, you know, yeah, just the, the ones yeah. you know from yeah, just yeah. from being yeah, around. Yeah. And now, you know, we've Shirley just got... Shirley Tetter, Nubia Garcia, Coco yeah, yeah. Roco. Yeah. So Coco many Roco are playing things. here, yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. here for that. Yeah. I'm definitely here yeah. for that. Yeah. It's, a bit, it's just been amazing work that yeah. what you do. Um, so, I mean, how do you actually approach people to get involved? What's what's the... What, what do people have to do to get involved? Well, they, they go online and they look it up or they come and see us. You know, they're at the... The, the group, the educational workshops are at the Royal Festival Hall downstairs in the basement there every Saturday and I think there's another day of the week as well but people just come out of the woodwork and they come and see us at gigs all over the place yeah. you know? and, and that's another thing that Tomorrow's Warriors does that's quite unique is they're always finding gigs for the band so the kids don't just turn up on a Saturday play their thing and go home They'll be doing a gig in Wood Green, at, you know, all the festivals, you know, they're, they're on the stages playing real gigs and they might be 15. You know, that's really important training for a musician and it's good for young people, yeah, not, you know. Person, yeah. yeah, so it's that's that's what happens. So you either, if you want to get involved by giving us some money, get online. If you want to get involved because you want to come along and experience it, get online and find out about enrolling. Absolutely. When you look around here and you see the... The, the way that the jazz sound is taking off. I mean, oh, who'd have thought you'd have a festival of this size? I was actually feeling a little bit envious that if I, you know, I had the Lyceum and the Wag Club, but if I'd had We Out Here when I was like in my late teens, early 20s, I'd be so happy. They're so lucky. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank, thank you so much for all the work you do. Oh, and we're right. Well, I'm and... only a volunteer, but the people that are really working hard are... I mean, volunteers are the most important, you know. <laughs> you know that, don't you? <laughs> but we're going to try and uh, get people to, to join in with Tomorrow's Warriors because... I mean, we discovered it through the music and uh, you know, there's so much joy being brought out of it. Like you say, not just for the people that we've ended up knowing about, but for all the many kids who've come through and just learned a bit about themselves. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, really so much. Thank you so much. You know, Coco Roca just had an album, I believe it's in the top 20 in the UK charts. Is it really? Is, that's that's yeah, great to see. Absolutely amazing. So Brownswood are like, you know, a UK label promoting UK jazz and they're, they're, they're breaking the, the national top 40. I think if I'd have said that to you, in when I was working the shop with like 99, 2000, you'd, you'd have laughed your socks off because you couldn't imagine it happening. I used to love the jazz section. I got my job in the shop because I used to listen to Sounds of Jazz by Brian Matthews on Radio 2 when I went to sleep. And so I knew a few of the few things about it and that got me the job in there. But, you know, it was, it was niche and it was old and there, certainly... Really, up until acid jazz, there wasn't a club culture that reflected it. Not out where I was. Not maybe in London, maybe in some of the big cities. But yeah, I'm not really sure there was. I mean, there was. You know, there were different streams. There was the jazz funk thing, which was Mm. so important. But you know, that that music was anathema to the jazz heads. They absolutely hated that. You know, if you go Mm. back to the literature, you can find. You know, jazz musicians. um, I can't remember exactly which ones, but quite a few of the established jazz musicians were so scornful of what. 
Donald Byrd was doing, for example, or Herbie Hancock, they just thought, you're cashing in. You know, you're just trying to cash in, <laughs> you know, combining it with rock, electronic instruments, dance m music flavors, you know, that's just sellout stuff. And, you know, I've got some time for that in one sense, you know, because, of, you know, jazz does need to move. And that wonderful sort of loft scene of the 1970s and 80s in New York, that free jazz scene, Milford Graves and, uh, you know, Ferris Sanders was involved. And they were really trying for something which was really out there you know it was the new thing and it was difficult and it was a niche and they wanted to try and keep the market away and i understand that that's fine but actually that music so much of that music which yes it's dance floor music and that's why we know it you know is, is rich musically and is full of great playing and is full of great solos and what happened to me and i think it's happened to generations of dance music people is through record collecting you you know you find you get your Roy Ayers and your Donald Birds and then you go back a little bit and you go back to your Cannibal Adderley's and your Nat Adderley's and your mm. um and and then you find then you discover the riches of the Blue Note catalog and so you kind of are taken into that world not via the kind of gatekeepers or the magazines or the sort of formal jazz institutions but through your kind of musical journey that you yeah. go through through your records and I think that's been a really important place that a kind of jazz sensibility which isn't so obsessed with what is and what isn't jazz you know that whole winter marsalis thing it's got to it's got to be connected to the blues and it needs to have this and you can't have that i mean that, that was a, always a hilarious moment when um you know winter marsalis was the kind of pin-up boy for this kind of what some people have called a kind of neoliberal jazz <laughs> ideology and at the same time his brother Branford was there playing on you know public enemy records and making fusion tunes yeah. uh, and I always thought that you know their, their dinner their sort of Christmas uh, dinner conversation must have been quite amusing <laughs> It's interesting when you talk about uh, how it did survive on record because I think that is a really interesting um, sort of thing to look at because, like I said, I don't think, certainly out in the provinces where I was growing up, jazz was still very much, oh, it's in the basement at the posh hotel in town and, you know, mm. you dress nicely. I was a goth when I first started getting into it. I can remember going into the <laughs> into the, the bottom of the, the local hotel with spiky hair and winkle pickers and literally uh, the, getting thrown out. And I, luckily, the uh, the chap who reviewed all the jazz for the local paper, the wonderfully named Beowulf Mayfield, he I knew from the shop and he had to vouch for me to say, no, he actually does like jazz, even though he looks like that. But that was the kind of level of... Uh, uh, you know of expectation in the in jazz scenes away from inner cities let's say it was off-putting wasn't it i mean oh, it, wasn't, it yeah. just wasn't for us yeah. i mean there were there were there were strange little i mean when i was at brighton I, I was a student at sussex and they had the jazz rooms there you know so they they had a nice little jazz thing going on which kind of was quite hip wasn't that moldy figs kind mm. of uh thing but it you know it was always very marginal Mm. Um, but the other, you know, the other big thing I think which gave a real boost here is what happened in American jazz with the kind of rise of the LA scene. You know, the Brain Feeder, Kamasi Washington, Kendrick mm. Lamar. So you got, and, and I think uh, Jay Diller has a part to play in this as well. With and and uh, D'Angelo actually, with the kind of 
that kind of off-step jazz sensibility which started mm -hmm. to enter into that kind of neo-soul and hip-hop. Um, and I think that gave a confidence because they had freed themselves from the shackles of the kind of respectability of jazz, the Lincoln Center, you know, the big programs, the way mm -hmm. that jazz has been very heavily institutionalized in the United States. Uh, didn't quite happen as, uh, you know, as, as strongly in this country. But I think that provided an influence and a sense for these younger British players that, yeah, we can do that. Of course, we can have a rapper on the mix. Of course, we can uh, have, use electronic instruments if we yeah. want. Um, we, you know, we don't have to conform having said that of course they've all been through a very rigorous training especially in the in the conservatoires where they do have to learn the standards you know and that may not be a bad thing mm. as long as you feel that you can then expand outwards and you can start making you know doing your own thing well it i think what makes this generation really exciting for me is that yes they have put in the hours they've done all that technical stuff and they know their way around their instruments they know what they want to do and and crucially i think they know who they are i don't think they're trying to ape other people particularly i think they are it's very much a now music it's very much their their feelings and their reflection of society really find interesting as a dj is a lot of the the club culture of the 90s first of all it broke it all down so anyone could do anything um and then as the you know rave was this big thing and then as that broke down and became lots of different subgenres of jungle and this and that and the other and you know things let's not underplay things like drum and bass where let's jazz not. was heard again for the, for the first time i can remember hearing yeah. jazz again it, it being played to young people was drum and bass it was Booker and people like that yeah, and you know step. i can remember playing things in the shop to some of the old guys and they were like oh, i don't know what the hell is happening with the drums but the, the, the player's really good you know mm. and that sort of thing that that the way that all broke down it it kind of allowed this generation to as you say f f make their own jigsaw puzzle find their albums look at who produced what look at what they were into and make their own map and make their own style and and this key thing about uh, there being a few places like clubs like jazz, jazz refreshed where they just kept that torch burning yeah. and they kept trying to unearth and find these incredible records which had gone so horrendously out of fashion, uh, you know, during the 80s and, and 90s that, you know, the, the very scene became known as Rare Groove because you couldn't find those records. You couldn't get them. Yeah, until you went to America and realised that America... They were, all, never, they were like 10 for a dollar. They, yeah. they chuck away their history <laughs> like crazy. So, of yeah. course, thank goodness in a way that that all disappeared because there was a kind of, you know, revival of it based on the fact that the records were affordable and that yeah. in fact you, they were out there you know when I was 
in America, I spent half my life, not, in, not actually in record stores, but in what they call Goodwill out there, which is a huge network of charity shops where everything's a dollar. Mm. And it was just astonishing, the, the, the riches that Americans are prepared to sort of discard <laughs> from their own culture. Um, but there's something about, um, the, you know, there's a sort of full circle thing here, which is really satisfying to me, which is just, I mean, I'm writing a piece about um, sound systems at the moment, the influence of sound systems on, on EDM, you know, for a, mm-hmm. for a collection. And the thing to, that I'm always fascinated by about sound systems is, you know, early sound systems were playing jazz. They mm-hmm. were playing bebop. But they were playing, their attitude to jazz was not um, a matter of d- generic distinctions or what is and what isn't jazz. That wasn't the issue. It was like, what did the people want to hear? So mm. it was R&B, it was Jump Jive, you know, it was Louis Jordan. Mm. It was a lot of that New Orleans stuff. And there is a, a strong undercurrent which has kept that alive, both in sound system culture, in record collections... In the black family, you know, when you interview these musicians, I mean, I've interviewed, you know, reggae artists, Coxon and Bavel, I've interviewed, you know, drum and bass people, Ronnie Sides, and I'm starting now to interview the jazz people. And the amount of them who say, well, it was my dad's record collection or my cousins or my uncles, mm. which kind of clued me into this stuff. You know, it's, a, it's like a, li- a dispersed library. Mm, yeah, you know, definitely. For, for, for the Afro-diasporic community who, after all, you know, have been deprived of access to the formal archives and the formal libraries and formal education through the operation of, you know, Western racism mm. for, you know, a long time. Um, and so they've built something which is flexible and dispersed and some of it's in people's houses and some of it's in little clubs and some of it's, you know, in, in the memory um, which, which has allowed these young musicians to go and take what they need from the more formal institutions without that being the only way in which they're trained so that they're not then told what isn't, isn't acceptable. And I think they feel confident now. And these guys, these guys are composers as well. They're not just knocking out the standards. Yeah, I mean, right, that, you know, that, is, that is a really important point in that I think the, one of the most exciting things about this latest wave of jazz is that, well, there are there are standards and there are songs that you've heard before, but so much of it is new in 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 layers. Do you know what I mean? Like the, mm. like the, the music itself has literally just been written, but the way it's written, the way it's recorded, the influences in, that, that come through from Africa and from different parts of the world, these haven't really been part of the canon in this country, probably ever. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, we never looked at West Africa for music you know, until maybe 25 years ago. And now it, th- that influence is across the board. You can see it everywhere in, in the drill stuff. You can see it in, in this jazz revival. You can see it in, in drum and bass. You can see it in, uh, you know, new MCs that are coming through in grime. It's, it's changed. It, it really has changed. And they are doing things that haven't been done before. And that is the very essence of jazz, really. I think that's right. But I also think that what it's done is given a boost or a re-evaluation of British jazz of the past. So there has, alongside this new interest in the new music, has been an interest in the jazz of the 60s and 70s, which was very marginalised and pretty hidden away. And a kind of generation of players like Ian Carr and Mike Gibbs and, uh, you know, coming out on these compilations, which are starting to get, you know, um, the jazz dad. I haven't met him, but I follow him. And he put out that wonderful compilation uh, recently with Harry Beckett and this kind of, you know, quite a strong showing from that generation of Jamaican mainly uh, yeah. musicians of the 60s, of the 50s and 60s who came and kind of revivified jazz in Soho at least um, Harry Beckett, um, Coleridge Good, um, obviously uh, Joe Harriet. so I think there's this new uh, move and, and 
when when you talk to the younger players they know all that stuff now this yeah. is partly a function of spotify and youtube because they have unprecedented access you know like we didn't when we were young to that music and the records um and they have got a strong sense that they're working that they're kind of going back over some ground that the previous generation had gone over and been completely ignored mm. uh, and forgotten um so that that's a really i mean and, and jazz has always got you know it's, it's you, you it's new you want it to be new but it is also so strongly connected to the past and to history and to um the need to reevaluate mm. uh you know things which have been overlooked yeah we had it, um we had soweto kinch come on the show and one of the things we talked about with him was the, the the fact that jazz is one of the few you know unlike say rock and roll uh, or pop music it's one of the few places where listening to previous generations learning from your elders is is not only encouraged it's like it, it's the lifeblood of it you know what i mean like yeah. actually being aware of of what the previous generation did is really important but the goal is always to move things forward and that that dichotomy makes it quite an exciting an exciting thing to watch yeah absolutely and soweto is obviously such a key figure here and you know i don't know if you remember when he sort of popped up on the scene and he was kind of picked out as this guy and part of the story was this guy studied you know at oxford did history at oxford and but he wants to be a jazz musician that was part of the kind of uh you know the way he was sold to the world and in a way he kind of appeared at a point when there didn't appear to be the kind of critical mass of a scene he was a sort of an individual yeah, but obviously he'd yeah, been working much. for ages you know he's got his jam session in birmingham which he'd been doing for a while in the early 2000s where he was building something which was parallel to what was being built in london at places like stees and um the mau mau bar and um uh, touching base you know these are kind of small and this is the other thing about it which i find really it's really sweet and really interesting is when you go to these jam sessions which are so important for this kind of music um the people are so nice it's mm. a bit like going to a i mean i don't mean this in a patronizing way but going to like a student performance you know where half of the audience are friends of the people in the who are performing and so they're yeah. really really supportive and they're really part of it and so when you go to the jam sessions it's not just you watching musicians you're in an audience full of musicians as well who are all part of the same thing who are encouraging each other who are spurring each other on there's a remarkable lack of ego I mean, I'll just tell you this story just because it sort of really struck me. I go to a jam session sometimes in Brixton, at Jam in Brixton, which is called um, Straight Pocket, mm -hmm. uh, organized by a label in Brixton called Pure Vinyl, a really cool little record shop. And, you know, it's a real mixed bag like jam sessions are. You know, some people, you know, aren't great or they're just starting out. They've got a decent house band who kind of know how to hold things down. But Sheila Morris Gray comes to that jam session, right? So she's the trumpet player who kind of, you know, is, I think she's the band leader of Kokoroko and mm -hmm. she's quite prominent in the new scene. But she comes along and she acts just like the rest of them. She kind of is a bit reticent to get on the stage. Um, she doesn't dominate. And in fact, when I saw uh, the jam session recently, she kind of only played a couple of tracks and she didn't bust loose and she didn't do what she could have done, which was dominate the stage. Mm. She was really, really kind and supportive to the young people of a, of a variety of different, you know, act, uh, you know, skill levels mm -hmm. um and that was so to me that was so indicative of this kind of what you might call the moral economy of this yeah. new jazz scene which is i mean you know a cliche way of thinking about it is that it's woke right that's how people are always you know the right wing describes people yeah, who actually oh, care about equality yeah, and, and being, yeah you know what i mean <laughs> um 
and you know so you get people like you get um the drummer from ezra collective you know femi Coliosa. i remember he was tweeting he's saying i'm not playing a venue that doesn't have wheelchair access you know he said i've got a friend who's in a wheelchair he can't even come to my gigs no that's not happening so they're they're, they're kind of pushing on yeah. these various fronts and you know when you go to steam down wayne francis uh, anansi you know he says at the beginning he kind of lays down the the rules you know we're here to be supportive of each other we know no bad mindedness you know be kind, enjoy yourself. And there's a real strong kind of sense of community mm. being built amongst a diverse group of people. But, you know, one of the most obvious things to me was there are a lot of black people involved in this. And mm. jazz was not a big deal for young black people when I was growing up at all. Um, and, and I think partly because it felt like it had been taken over by, you know, the white intelligentsia mm. and was out of reach. And that is not the case anymore. It's been reclaimed, you know, and then you get these wonderful idea of these kind of collaborations between, you know, like Swindle, you know, a guy who's a grime producer, but actually he's a jazz man and he wants to make a live jazz album with, with, you know, grime vocalists and saxophone players and trombone players yeah. and funky bass players. And that is just so exciting. Yeah, and that, that kind of, um, the acceptance of club culture in this latest breed is, is really great as well. I mean, I, I absolutely love the last Moses Boyd album, which at times was pure jazz and at times was proper grime, breakbeat, bass music, trip hop, all of that stuff, all mixed together. But again, there's a musicianship that runs through it, whereas in, perhaps in, in the early 90s, you'd have had a piano sample He's playing the piano for the yeah. whole five yeah. minutes. That, track, that really you know? makes a difference. And, you know, also, uh, I don't know if it was the last album or the one before of Moses, you know, there's that jazz funk element to it mm. as well. There's yeah. like, it's like he's listening to Return to Forever and sort of bringing back some of these kind of very unfashionable prog jazz, in, you know, but putting it in a new context with and, and just playing in such an incredible way. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that just strikes me so strongly is... You know, we, uh, this came to my mind when I was thinking about the Pharaoh Sanders album that he made with Floating Points, you know, mm. Promise. Is it Promise or Promises? Promises. I can never remember. Yeah, uh, a lovely album. I mean, it was controversial. Some people didn't like it, but um, I thought it was lovely. But, you know, yeah. Pharaoh Sanders is 80 years old. We're looking at a bunch of musicians who, many of whom are in their late 20s. You know, Shabaka's a bit older in his mid-30s. They've already made a couple of albums, many of them, or three or four albums and done tons of gigs. There's so much music. Now, they are ready. They're, they're just on the cusp, mm. you know, of of being able to produce uh, music for the next two or three uh, decades yeah. and, and inspire another round of young people to, to want to be that, you know, in a way that nobody wanted to be that when we were young, you know, that wasn't, everyone wanted to be a DJ or a footballer yeah. when I was growing up. Um, and now people are thinking, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to give that euphonium a go or a tuba. I mean, tubers, people, <laughs> tubers are big, people moshing, tubers. moshing yeah. to tubers. It's just <laughs> astonishing. Once you've seen Theon Cross blast a few bass notes oh. out there, it's, it's a life changing experience. I it really say. is, isn't it? And again, talking about going full circle, I mean, you know, the history of jazz is the history of the tuba as the bass instrument until it was el elbowed aside by the by the stand up bass mm. and then subsequently by the electric bass. So there's a kind of a, 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 a pleasing hundred year return to some of the origins of jazz music some of these people weren't recorded buddy bolden never actually was recorded so he's this mythical figure but those early early jazz recordings they're bad quality recordings it's yeah. a bit like people think the past was in black and white <laughs> and yeah. they think that you know everything was sounded crap back then but it didn't it was just because they didn't know how to record it that music was punk it yeah. was a cutting edge it was the cutting edge of classical music it was the cry for freedom it was like you know it was so potent and there's a sense of recapturing that kind of spirit and the disruptive, powerful spirit of Carnival, 
which I think is in, inherent in that New Orleans music. Because when you go to New Orleans, I went a couple of years ago and, uh, from my second visit, and it was very obvious that New Orleans is a Caribbean city mm-hmm. as much as it is an American city. Its connections to Cuba, its connections to Haiti, its connections to the other parts of the Caribbean are so strong. And musically, it is still that kind of powering out the kind of core uh, energy that is, that, that is driving this musical form, including, you know, in my estimation, including techno and, and even the most electronic forms of kind of dance music. They're still drawing from that well. Anybody chat that clap, get clapped back. Don't wanna take my country back, me. I wanna take my country forward. Don't wanna hear that racist clap chat. Chat that chat, get clapped back. Don't wanna take my country back, me. I wanna take my country forward. There's a lot of a lot of positivity there uh, about about the future and the the way this scene could carry on, like you say, for decades and decades. I mean, there there's so much potential still, but it's not without its problems as well. Mm. There there are a few things that have changed in the last few years, <laughs> without getting too oh, heavily yeah. political, that are um, you know really causing a, a massive. It's a big yeah. spanner in the works that people like oh. Tomorrow's Warriors and Jazz Refresh and all those people that kept the flame alive. Things like Brexit and being able to tour Europe easily, yeah. these aren't small concerns, are they? This is this is really important to to jazz, especially because jazz cannot exist without the live experience. No, that's that's the other thing about this is uh, you know my fascination with with that show I was telling you about was because this was something which wasn't disc based culture. You know, we had grown up with it. You know, I, I'm very proud of my involvement and my love for records and the disc-based culture that we all grew up in. This was about live. This is about delivering it different every time in front of other people, depending on who's there, a different vibe. And and a lot of these artists, and unbeknownst to me, I, I probably wasn't paying much attention, you know, were touring a lot, especially in Europe, throughout, you know, from about 2012 onwards. So 2012 to 2018, that was really heavy touring schedule, going to the jazz festival, North Sea Jazz Festival, playing in Germany, playing in Italy. And Brexit's fucked it all up. I mean, you know, just another example of this egregious self-inflicted wound. 
having to fill out you know endless forms mm. uh, not being able to get visas not being able to sort out uh, accommodation because everything has gone up in price and become massively more complicated I mean who would want to be a tour manager now yeah. um, and actually when you talk to a lot of these, these jazz cats you know a lot of them aren't that optimistic because the, the, the pressure is on and the pressure was always on it was always hard to be a working musician it was always hard to have a sustainable career we know that that's true um, but it's just become a hell of a lot worse. Obviously, lockdown, you know, which nobody, you can't really blame anyone for, um, had a big impact on the fact that people couldn't actually tour or make an income during those two years. Mm. A lot of these guys did really innovative things, you know, started live streaming, uh, doing their tiny desk gigs, uh, woodshedding and doing more practice and, and writing music. So in that way, they made the most of it. But the world they've come back to after lockdown is a lot worse in terms of touring than it was before and in terms of cost. Mm. Um, I mean, you will have seen that um, Lil Sims had to cancel her American tour a couple of years yeah. ago or last what a year shame because, because she, she's so it, it's her time. It, and yet, absolutely, the money, and, and, it's a massive bet, isn't it? Anytime you're going to go across somewhere as vast as America, you're basically putting your house and your grandma's house yeah, on the exactly. Line. Unless unless you you're, if you've got big you know deep pocket uh, backing, and you know the whole point of this scene is that it's DIY. You know, I'm, I would include Lil Sims in. As part of this world, by the way, I just don't think we should make too many strong distinctions. I feel that yeah. she's very much working in that same world, and it wouldn't surprise me if she would be collaborating with a lot of these people or if she hasn't already. Uh, so the touring thing is really screwed up, um, and it really remains to be seen what, what can be done about it, um, and you know whether it will inevitably push these people in the arms of big record labels or those kind of brands who intervene like red bull and others who you know to fund it and whether they'd be prepared to do it although some of them seem to be you know withdrawing from supporting popular music um so there's that aspect of it then there is the digitization of the music economy right which has happened you know transformatively over the past um you know i've been teaching my course at soas for 10 years now i, I teach a popular music class and you know when i started i used to do by show of hands you know who streams music uh, I had quite a lot of like illegal file downloaders and yeah. maybe maybe 10% of the class doing streaming when I started. Uh, then sort of five years later, most people were streaming, but they were streaming on lots of different platforms. And now Spotify has got 100% of the market virtually. All of, you know, there's the odd person who's still on Deezer or whatnot, but there's been a fundamental change. That has obviously had some very positive outcomes for those of us who like it as a music discovery tool. You know, it's never been the case that I can be reading a book on music. Someone mentions a track and I can be listening to it, you know, within yeah, 10 seconds. seconds. Yeah, yeah. And that has been a major thing for research and for learning and for discovery. Fantastic. Go and buy on Bandcamp once you've done that, you know, if you want to stay on the right side of, you know, morality. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of income, uh, it's it's not entirely clear the the uh, how it's working, because all of these artists are all over Spotify. And you can find their stuff and you can see that they're getting decent levels of streaming. But we know that they're not getting a lot of, mo a lot of money per stream. Mm -hmm. They don't actually work it out per stream, but it's, you know, it's too complicated to explain. But roughly speaking, um, th they're not making a fortune. Having said that, um, there is a school of thought within sort of academia that it's, the, the streaming model is broken and it's unfair and needs to be transformed. But I had Elijah from Butters into my class this year, um, you know, grime DJ and mm -hmm. runs his label. 
And he said, don't overlook the importance of being able to generate some regular long-term income. And that's what streaming does for us. We're not making a fortune, but having that music there. In the old days, it was you put out a record, you got a bit of a rush, you know, it peaked in the first couple of weeks that it was out and then it disappeared mm. a couple of months later. Streaming isn't like that. Things can stick around. They can get have spikes. And in the end, it does provide some level of regular income, which is, after all, what everyone needs to survive and pay the rent. So there's that aspect of it as well. Um, and then, of course, there's all the pressures. And this is a particular interest I have in terms of music and gender. It's like, what, is that, what, what will happen for those female jazz musicians uh, who are reaching prominence in their field and ready to you know, roll, but also might want to have families or you know, have kids? You know, is there any kind of support for that? You know, independent musicians don't get, you know, maternity leave or holiday pay or any of that kind of stuff. So are they going to be able to really sort of build a career in the longer term? And how will they do that? That's one of the big questions that I obviously we don't know the future, but that's why I want to go and ask people and figure out what, you know, how they might do that uh, such that they because it's, you know, it's quite grueling touring yeah. and, you know, the nightlife world. Um, you know, will be, people be buying this? It's great to hear that people are buying Kokoroko album. And one of the interesting things about that is that it's not a banging club album at all, is it? It's full no, of songs. It's, it's full I of mean, beautiful uh, horn lines and rather subtle melodies. Yeah, it reminds me of kind of uh, like laid back moments of the Blackbirds and with yeah. this, this African element and, and rhythmic element that perhaps you, d you didn't normally associate with, with jazz. No, and I think we're being educated a lot in that, aren't we? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I found during lockdown a time when I, I revisited my records and I listened back to all the tracks that I'd ignored. Yeah, they, yeah, they I did didn't, loads of that. They didn't have great bits. It was. What oh, joy. my God, and I found so much. And so many of the things I'd ignored are the ones that had either more Latin feel or a more African feel, mm. neither of which were particularly strong on the club scenes that I was in. You know, we were so, so, so into the breakbeat and the yeah. funk element. And so I've discovered so much out of that. And I think this new group of people are very well educated. It's like you can play those, that, that African pace music to dance and in fact of course it's the best dance music in the world it turns out um you know and we now know much more about you know fella Kuti and particularly tony allen and what he did with music and we've seen that that emerge and i would say that was part of this this kind of new musical world as well um so it's a, it's a music it's they're very highly educated these young mm. people not just as musicians uh, in terms of how to play their instruments but in terms of their knowledge and understanding about music you must find this when you dj it's like young people 18 year olds know a lot of music and they know a lot of our music in a way I, you know, that we didn't I, know i'd say i i kind of i used to play you know because i was a raver so I did, I did like house and techno and and drum and bass and jungle and that sort of thing and as i've kind of uh as the digital things took over i went back into my record collection and kind of remodeled myself because i want to play vinyl i enjoy it i don't enjoy me too. playing files and stuff it just doesn't do it for me um that's not a judgment. That's just how it is. Um, me too. It's not but, a judgment, but that's how it is for me too. <laughs> but when you're playing it, and when you when you're playing out, you know, a the the kids like it, and and they are clued up, and they do want to find out about it, and they like seeing these objects, and they like going away. I'm going to go and look for that. Do you know what I mean? I, and mm. and then they will tell you something. Oh yeah, I had that one, but then this was also produced by the same person and blah 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 and they will start talking to you someone who's like you know 30 years my junior talking about a record that was made maybe before they were alive <laughs> i mean that level of comprehension and knowledge i don't think that ever existed before because they can now uh, with a few clicks they can trace the whole family tree and be way back way back at the beginning you know 
Yeah, no, it's astonishing. And so in that way, it's a kind of informal academy. No, we're talking about a whole series of informal institutions which are doing learning, training, teaching, mm. supporting knowledge, you know, completely outside, well, not completely outside of the realm of formal academia in school. It does happen in some of those places, but actually it's not uh, being delivered top down. And yeah. it is, so it's actually an organic way in which musical history is being rethought and people are, are, are receiving a new kind of training, which gives some credence. You know, there's quite a lot of bullshit talk sometimes about, you know, club culture and DJs, you know, as kind of archivist scholars or whatever. But actually, <laughs> actually, I think that in this scene, the role of the DJs who've kept this music alive, even when it wasn't fashionable and uh, redeployed it in new circumstances and went and bothered to do the work which you know which all right it's quite fun work digging the crates mm. um is what has kept this alive to the point where it can now be picked up by this new generation who've got a lot more confidence and a lot more chutzpah but they've also got the technical skills which i've never seen british mus jazz musicians yeah. f look so confident and sound so fresh uh, and feel like they you know and this is why and it's very gratifying to see when you hear americans being interviewed about this kind of thing where they're like well what's really going on is what's going on in the UK yeah, you know yeah. we, and, and it's allowed us to, to step out of what was a rather rigid uh, jazz system in America partly because part of it was very heavily funded you know the Lincoln Center and the Marsalis kind of smart dress a uh, post-bot world um, and the rest of it was just overlooked I think as now we've we've got to this stage and we've got these these skills within communities and uh, you know like you say a, a shared history that is spread out in, in lots of unusual ways. And we've got this vibrancy. It's really important for anyone who likes music, whether you're a jazz head or not. This is a precious thing I think we've really got to look after now. Because, like I say, when I was uh, ending my time in the shop and everyone was banging out a white label with, with a few bleeps on it and a few breaks, I couldn't have seen this happening again. And here we are, and it really is happening. And I think we need to we need to be proud of it and nurture it and try and push it forward. Because as you say... A lot of these artists, if you go by Duke Ellington, who, you know, dropped dead at 90-something, still mm -hmm. doing it, we've got, you know, 50, 60 years worth of things to look forward to from this generation and hopefully the generation that's underneath them as well. So it's a great time to be alive, I think. Oh, no, absolutely, and I can't wait. And, you know, just the excitement of being, you know, I mean, in a way it's hard to keep up with what's going on, but, it, <laughs> uh, you know, it's... Something and, and young people are really digging it. You know, my students, people are dying to write about it. It's opened their eyes to a lot of things which they hadn't hitherto considered or thought, thought about. Um, so in that way, it's all very healthy. I mean, I do think there's a larger set of questions about how we're going to support our creative industries in general, which is to do with people having a decent level of kind of economic support. And, uh, you know, there are various, uh, you know, Scandinavian countries who often do this better where they, they, there are systems by which you can get kind of insurance. So if you're a working musician, but you, you're, you fall ill, yeah. you, can, you can have some kind of support for your, um, you know, for your work or for your life. And I would hope that, you know, I mean, our current, not to get all political, but our current government doesn't give a shit about that kind of stuff. <laughs> and let's hope we can toss them out because this is also, it's ecological, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's thinking about music as part of the ecology and part of the, what people in my trade call the foundational economy, which means, you know, what are the things we actually really, really need? And we had a bit of rethink of that during lockdown when we suddenly realized oh god we really need nurses and people who drive buses and clean up yeah. shit right now it hasn't translated into them getting a pay rise but but we i would like to see that we include music in that because 
if lockdown taught us anything, it's that essential value of music in our lives, you know, spiritually, emotionally, knowledge-wise. Um, yeah, art in general, do you know? Art, yeah, absolutely. And, and if we don't treat it like that, you know, we don't deserve it. Yeah. You know, and yeah, these guys absolutely. will have to go off and, you know, hang up their, their saxophone and go and get a, you know, get a real job. If so get out there, just... see the concert, get yourself to Bandcamp, buy the pay record, the money, keep the, the scene money. alive, pay the money. Good, good words. You, Listen, you Kasper, I could talk to you literally all day about jazz and all, all of the things we've touched on today. Um, it's, been, it's been so much fun. I really appreciate <laughs> it's been it. Thanks. Really great to have you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank today. you, Eamon. hope you enjoyed our chat about UK jazz with the wonderful Casper Melville. If you did enjoy it, why not tell a friend? It is coming up to Christmas. Perhaps you'll be rubbing shoulders and brushing ears with uh, people you haven't seen in a while, people who love music, people who might be interested in this podcast and entertained by it. Why not do us a favour and do them a favour and feel good about yourself by just telling them about the podcast? That's all we ask. We don't want money. We, we, we do want fame. That's why we ask you to tell your friends about this podcast and spread the word. If you know someone who'd like it, just tell them. Tell them about what goes around. Thank you very much. Rub their ears, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> With the podcast. Yeah.